Romans. Interesting, last Tuesday night uh, in our men's uh, fellowship here, <clears throat> I mentioned that uh, what an awesome chapter Romans chapter 5 is. And one of the guys said, you say that about every chapter. <laughs> and I, I just looked at him and said, you're right. Because my favorite chapter is the one where I'm studying, and we're in some good stuff today. <laughs> um, it's true. As we plumb God's word for answers in our lives, as we, uh, as we allow him to speak to us through his word, by his spirit, what a privilege it is, gang. What a privilege we have, having those spiritual ears that Jesus talked about as he walked the earth, as he taught, and he said things like, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's you and I. That's a miraculous aspect of conversion. That's a miraculous aspect of what it is to be related to God, to be justified by God. As we've been here in in this book, remember chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 That is the gospel. It is the message that uh, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, It's the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and to also to the Greek, to everyone who believes the good news. As we've been looking at this and uh, we talked about, remember, we talked about how Paul systematically goes through. He goes from one group to the next to the next and essentially illustrates that they are under condemnation. He talks about the Gentiles. Remember, we looked at the heathen in chapter 1. We related that to the world around us where uh, the judgment of God is upon this world. And and then we looked at the people that thought, well, I'm better than they are because I, I live a moral life. And we looked at the moralist. And the moralist doesn't cut it because it's like that just produces self righteousness. It's not the righteousness you need. You need more righteousness than that, than living a moral life. And then he goes in and he talks about the religious person. When he talks about the Jews specifically, but really you can apply that to anybody that's religious. And air quotes on that, uh, because that's a very wide subject. Uh, I was thinking this week, you know, people say, I don't want to talk about politics or religion. Well, (laughs) they can be hot buttons for sure. But we don't want to talk about religion. We want to talk about the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. So as we got into chapter 3, we looked at the bad news in the first 20 verses there. That essentially everybody is shut up under sin. Everybody stands condemned before God. And then in the last 10 verses of chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, we looked at Paul gave a working definition, if you would, of justified, what it is to be justified by faith, justification by faith, major doctrine in our understanding. So then going into chapter four, we broke it down over a couple of weeks. The first thing we looked at is that justification is by faith, not works. (laughs) You can't earn it. You can't work hard enough. You will never be good enough. You'll never, never tithe enough. You will never go to church. No, you, you just can't get there from here. And he, he really illustrated that. Remember, he illustrated that through Abraham and David. Talked about these two great men in the Old Testament. So they were justified by faith, not works. And, and then last week, we looked at 
the fact that justification comes by grace alone, not law. It's not by keeping rules. Uh, then we finished off last week looking at the fact that justification comes by resurrection power because Jesus rose from the dead. He certifies that that sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. And now he, as the firstborn of the resurrection, blesses us. That it, justification comes by resurrection power, not human effort. It's not by what you do. It's not, And we are so conditioned to the other way. We're going to look at that a little bit this morning. But as we get into chapter 5, we're going to look now, and, and Paul shifts a little bit in his writing, and he talks about the blessings of justification. I look at that as benefits. Have you guys ever gone looking for a job? And and when you look for a job, I've been self-employed most of my life, but there have been times, periods where I didn't have a business or whatever. Uh, And one of the things you look at is, okay, well, here's the job. What's the benefit package look like? Because I need medical insurance, for instance, or, you know, I don't, I don't want to get to the end of my life and not have a 401k or my work life. You know, I, and, and so what are the benefits to this job? And we look at that in a, in a sort of an abstract way. Paul here is now going to start talking about the benefits. What comes with the package of being justified by faith? Yes, you are justified. The moment you believe you are justified, you are seated in the heavenlies with Christ that is irrevocable, that is a done deal. He sees you in God's righteousness, period. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how you've lived, all of that stuff. He says, no, come as you are and let me justify you. Let me put my righteousness on your life through the work of the cross. So as we look at this, we're going to look at the blessings or the benefits of justification. And we do, folks, I named the study full benefits. That We got a good package. Not only do we have a really, really, really good, the best in the universe retirement package, eternity in the presence of God, but we got a good package here while we work for the Lord, while we live this life out. Read through the first five verses of chapter five, and then we'll get into it. He says, in verse 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, Hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's a lot there. So we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at seven benefits, which are ours as a result of justification. Uh, In verse one, he says, therefore, he says, having been justified. I love that. It's a done deal. This is past tense. He's looking back, therefore, at what I've been saying about this thing called justification, that yes, it's just as if you'd never sinned, but it's way more than that because you're not only declared sinless, (laughs) you're declared holy. You get God's righteousness, which is on top of the whole thing. 
So he's saying, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So that therefore, as a result of, he goes into the, the lengthy discussion of, of the benefits that every believer has in having been justified. Benefit number one, peace with God. Peace with God. First and foremost, how? He says here, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his work, through the, the, the work, the atoning work that Christ did, the work of redemption. He'll talk about that further in this chapter. We won't get to it today. But the work of redemption that he did on our behalf. So in Colossians chapter 1, there's an interesting passage there uh, that parallels this very well. He says in you, in verses 21 and 22 of Colossians chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, but because I'm going to just kind of breeze through it. He says, and you who were once were alien, alienated and enemies or hostile in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Paul says there that we were enemies of God, enemies of the cross. I got to thinking about this. I, was, I went, I found some old slides on, on some old war stuff. <laughs> and this first slide, it, it, it talking about victory in, in war. That, that what happens when there's been a war, when hostilities have been going on, when hostilities end, what's the result? Peace. Peace with God. And there is no greater peace that you can experience. You can have peace with your spouse or not. You, you can have peace with your kids or not. You can have peace with your boss or not. But when we have peace with God, we have peace with God. There's no or not attached to that. This shows us that all men and women, until they are justified, are at war with God and that Frankly, we looked at it in Romans chapter 1 that God is at war with them. Hostilities, that we are hostile in our natural state, in, in, in our unredeemed state, we're hostile towards him. But, I love that, that, that word. But when we're justified by faith, the wrath of God, which abides on those who do not believe in his son, it's turned away, it's rolled away. We're no longer enemies with God. So when he says we have peace with God, turn that around. That means you're no longer his enemy. And we don't want to be enemies with God. I know who's going to win. So he says you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, in verse 2, also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That word rejoice there means exult. Uh, and, and what that word means, it means to have a confident, triumphant joy. Yes, it's that kind of a sense that goes to it. It's like, yes, I am totally justified. I am declared clean in God's sight. I can have confidence in my salvation. I can have confidence in this relationship. That's exalt. And that's literally what that word rejoice means. So the second benefit as we see here in verse 2, he says it, it, that we have access to God. Nobody had that except Moses and a, and a few select guys 
the prophets had portions. We were talking about that the other night. They had, they had a portion of the Holy Spirit. They had, God gave, we're told in Hebrews chapter 1 that God spoke to the fathers through the prophets in many portions and many ways. But now has spoken to us, implied completely in his son. So there was no access to God. The only access to God was once a year. The high priest could go behind the veil. He had to first make atonement for his own sins, his own life. And then he could atone for the sins of the nation. But people never had access. One guy, once a year. It's all changed with the cross. It doesn't just stop with ceasing hostilities. We now enjoy access into an indescribable position of favor with God. Folks, if you don't get anything else this morning out of this, understand that your standing before God blows the doors open to the throne room itself. There is no barrier. Jesus has bridged that gap once and for all and that you have access, full, unhindered access to God. The Greek word is prosagoge, and it means the right or the opportunity to address someone implying a higher status of the person being addressed. In other words, this is, this is a regal term. If you wanted to have access to the king or access to the governor, this is the word that was used. It's not just into a standing of grace, but it's access into the very courts of heaven. This is the access that Isaiah had in limited measure in Isaiah chapter 6, where he says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He was taken to the very throne room of God. This is the same throne room that we look at in Revelation chapter 5, when we see that there's the lamb and the throne and the 24 elders and the whole deal, we have access. It's a confident access. It's it's granted to us by the fact that Jesus died for us and that we simply trusted that. I got to thinking about this. I I was thinking about back in my days when I was working in the billboard industry, um, (laughs) the way that we built our billboard company, because we had our own stuff for a while, uh, was that we would go out and we would lease property to build these signs on. And hugely strict laws, federal, state, county, local, whatever. And it was very hard, very, very hard to get a permit to do that. What we loved was that if we would go to a particular county where permits were available by right. In other words, you walk up to the permit counter, you say, I got this thing I'm going to do. And there are no ordinances against it. So it is my right to get a permit. And they have to give it to you. Even if the guy doesn't like billboards, and some people don't, and I understand all that. The point is, the other one was that there was a, it was called a conditional use permit. If they would even allow that, then you had, that meant you had to jump through a bunch of hoops. Folks, what we're talking about is access to God by right. We walk right up to the counter, and we're not getting a permit, we're getting a relationship. We're getting full access to the king. In Hebrews 4.16, the writer there says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have that right. What's troubling you today? You have access to the king. You have access 
to all that he has, to the inheritance that we share among the saints. Also in verse 2, we see the third benefit that we have, and that's that we have a standing in God's grace. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul wrote uh, in verses 5 and 6, he says, God has predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. We'll talk about adoption further in Romans here. We get into chapter 8 and all that. But he says, according to the good pleasure of his will. In other words, it wasn't something that he just decided, well, okay, grudgingly, I want a relationship. I'm going to make it legally uh, available to these people to have a relationship with me. No, it's according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he made, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So if justification is receiving God's own righteousness, and we've looked at that, that's what it is. We receive the righteousness of God. How then does he see me? How does he see you? Paul says here, we're we're accepted in the beloved. Uh, Therefore, we are as near and dear, and get this, understand, this, this twists my brain. We are as near and dear to the Father as Jesus was and is. Understand that. That's the nature of the transaction. That's the nature of the relationship that you might look at your life and go, wow, I've got a whole series of things that I've done wrong or things of failure, whatever it is. No, he didn't see that. He sees you in the righteousness of his son and it's real. This isn't a concept. It's real. That righteousness rests on your life. You therefore have full access, not just full access, but He pursues that relationship with us. Why? Because of his grace. Because he chooses to love us. Sons and daughters have access to their father. I remember my kids, they always knew. When they got out of school, a lot of times they had to come by my my shops or my office and, 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 and they always knew it didn't matter what dad was doing that they had, they could, they would come bounding in. And yeah, if I was having a business meeting with somebody and it was serious and they came into the back office or whatever, they, okay. And they kind of tiptoe out, but they knew that they had access. They knew that no matter, and I wanted it that way. You know, my employees did not, they knew don't block John's kids. Because I want them to know that they are more important than what I'm doing at that moment. You ever think about that when it comes to a relationship with God? You ever think about the fact that you have access? He's not too busy for you. He's not tied up. Yeah, he's running a universe and that takes a lot. (laughs) However, that's why he's omniscient. That's why he's omnipresent. That's why he's omnipotent. He is able to do all of that effortlessly and enjoy a relationship with you, with me. It's by his grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. I love that acronym for grace. So we see here that grace is not only the beginning principle of the Christian life, that we are saved by grace through faith. We see that in Ephesians 2, but it's the continuing principle of the Christian life. It's all by his grace. We stand in it. That's why he says we have a standing in grace. Is that a benefit? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. It's amazing. And it is amazing. That's why the the, the song was written. It's amazing grace. You can't exhaust it. 
you can't have God get tired of it. He says, I love you with a father's love. You have access to me unhindered. I'm never too busy for you, my son or my daughter. Blows my mind. I, I, I get, <laughs> it takes a lot for me, but I get speechless and things like that. Hang on a second here. I messed up the Kleenex. I want to just address something too briefly. Many times people fall into kind of a subtle works-oriented mindset. We, we, we understand intellectually that we're saved by grace and that we stand in his grace. We, we might understand that intellectually, but we can drift because our flesh is wired for performance-based acceptance. We're, that's, that's our nature. We can drift into the idea of now that we're satisfying God on the basis of law. We don't even say it. We may not even recognize it. But what happens is that uh, we can start thinking in terms of earning and deserving. I've told people before, good luck trying to earn brownie points with God. You got everything that you need and it's way more than you'll ever use. We can start falling into that. Earning, deserving, work and reward. How about success and failure? I don't know about you, but I've got failures in my life. Part of what Paul is saying here is if you belong to the king, if you're a child of the king, that is not going to count. That does not change God's view of you. Yeah, sometimes we deal with circumstances from stuff. And yet the, the nature of grace and we'll look at it when we get into the next chapter. Well, further in this chapter, where he talks about where grace abounds or where sin abounds, grace superabounds. That's further in chapter five. We'll look at it next time. But the point is, is you can't out sin his grace. You can't have a bad enough history to not enjoy his grace. You stand in it. You have access to him because you have peace with God. These things kind of build on one another. So the point in this is grace is both a means towards as well as the outworking of the peace of God that we enjoy. And it's a permanent standing before God. You say, well, Pastor John, are you talking about eternal security? You bet I am. I believe that I am secure eternally. I don't know about you, but we can enjoy the permanence of a relationship. Yeah, do sometimes people walk away? Yeah, they do. My question at that point is, were they ever there to begin with? And that's not the subject of this morning's message. I think it is important when he's talking about us being children of the king. My kids screwed up. I didn't kick them out. Well, when they were older. <laughs> but I mean, they always knew, even, even though they messed up, that they still had, number one, they had access, that, that there was a relationship in place that was not going to be broken. Fellowship was interrupted because if I had to discipline them, I'm not bouncing them on my knee. But that's the nature of the relationship with our father. It's a permanent relationship. The fourth benefit we see here is, is, is that of rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. As I said, these are building on one another because we have peace with God, because we have access to God, because our standing before God is by his grace as a permanent member of his own family. 
We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's the natural outworking. It's the logical conclusion to such peace and such a standing of grace. I want to mention, too, that I see a beautiful picture that's emerging here. And let me show it to you. Here's the point. We're talking about this is all done by faith. This is all, these are all aspects of what it is to be a believer. When you really own, I mean, when you really own that you have peace with God, regardless of anything and everything that you've ever done, you've ever thought, you've ever said, no matter how bad, that's why death row inmates, it's a real conversion. When you see that from time to time, you see, you know, some remarkable story about some person that gave their life to Christ in jail. I loved jail ministry because, and I would share with those guys, you know, the biggest difference between you and me is you got caught. Straight up. Part of this beautiful picture is that when you really own that you have peace with God, regardless, fill in the blank. When you really own that you have complete access to God as his beloved child. Really, when you own that, when you really own that you stand in his glorious grace as one wearing God's own righteousness, fully forgiven, fully pardoned, fully welcomed into the family of God, fully welcomed into the throne room of God, there will be, the result of that, there will be a continual profound shift in your life. And many of us have experienced that and still do. As a result of no longer being at war with God, there are a couple of things I want to I share that you'll experience. We experience more, but a couple I want to hone in on here for a minute. And one, I would call it the enemy without, the enemy outside, the enemy, uh, because we're no longer at war with him. We're his children. We have these things. These, these are benefits that are bestowed upon us. The enemy without is you will be misunderstood, maligned, judged, hated by a world to which you no longer are an active participant. Part of what it is to be in but not of the world. And I'll tell you what, I was no threat to the powers of darkness as long as I was walking, as the Bible says, according to the course of this world. But when you stand up for Christ... When you walk in the reality of these things, it changes you. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you behave. It changes the way you interact with the world around you. And the world, I'll tell you what, the Gospel of John says that that men love darkness rather than light and that they were rejecting of Christ. Your light, Jesus says, nobody you know, lights a lamp and hides it under a bushel. And as your light shines, people are not going to automatically pat you on your head and tell you what a wonderful person you are. Not all, yet <laughs> among us. But we live in a world that is still at war with God. And when you stop being at war with God, guess what? The war comes to you. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus warns of this. He says, blessed are you. Uh, when you're persecuted for righteousness sake, for, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I used to hear that <laughs> the campus crusade and all of that, Bill Bright. 
And he does. But I'm telling you, folks, is there a cost to discipleship? Is there a cost to belonging to Christ? Yeah, there is. And I don't want to sound overly bold. The way I feel about it at this stage in my life, bring it. I really don't care what it costs. I just want to walk with the Lord. I just want to experience his grace. I am so grateful. I, I, I'm not sure what was going on this morning, but I, I just sense that the spirit of God is moving powerfully, uh, not just on our worship leaders' hearts, but on mine, perhaps on yours. How's the gratitude level? Yeah, it's not easy all the time. Not only do we deal with the enemy without, we deal with the enemy within. Because you'll live less for yourself. What that creates is that now you're at odds with the world. You're at odds even with the old habits, the things, the ways that you behave, all of that. You live more for God's purposes and for his kingdom. And if you hadn't noticed, it runs totally contrary to the way this world runs. In John chapter 17, a passage that I love and I quote often, Jesus' great high priestly prayer, shortly before he was arrested, horribly treated, crucified. He's praying, praying for his disciples, even prays for you and I in that prayer. And in verses 16 and 17, he says, they are not of the world. He's talking about his disciples, you and I, just as I am not of this world. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So when we're at peace, we're, we're at peace with God. We're no longer at war with God. So what then is the standard by which I live my life? I live my life as a child of the king. And I understand that the way that the king is communicated to me is by his spirit and through his word. Because his word is the only source of truth that we can rely on. In Acts chapter 20, Paul got this. Uh, he's there with the elders of the church of Ephesus at Miletus, called them down. And he's talking about the way that he's been treated. He says, none of these things move me, nor do I account my life dear to myself so that my, I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. We're told that the, the flesh battles against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. My flesh up until I came to Christ had rule in my life, sat on the throne of my heart. There's no power there. The Holy Spirit of God brings power and and, and the spirit of lust for the position the flesh has because the spirit wants to have the, the, the throne of my heart to exercise the power of God in my life. I can kick him off by wanting to live for myself. That's the enemy within that I'm talking about. Or I can yield to the working of the Holy Spirit in my life. Allow him to rule and reign in my life. Allow him to direct the course of my life and enjoy the benefits of that. So practically speaking, what does this all really look like? That's the question. And the answer is a totally radical perspective on life. We are different The Bible says you are a peculiar people. I know some of you are more peculiar than others, but the point is we are, we're different. We are set apart as as children of the king, as members of the kingdom, as people who are walking in this world, but we're not part of it. We're different. Our lives are lived radically different 
The result of that is we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen. Because our hope is not found here. Our hope is not found in our job. Our hope is not found in our kids, our grandkids, as good as those things are. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the redemptive work that he's done and is doing on this planet. Our hope is in the work that he's doing, the surgery, the divine surgery he's doing in my heart today. Verse 3. He says, and not only that, but we also glory or exult. There's that word again. Exult in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. So he says, we exult in trouble. That sounds weird to me. I'm telling you. It's just, we look at that and we go, really? This is a very, very spiritual thing to say, Pastor John, but really? Yeah, really. And here's why. The fifth benefit that we have is God gives us a divine perspective. As we learn to live well in sometimes really difficult circumstances, even painful circumstances, he gives us a divine perspective. He gives us a perspective on life that we don't naturally possess. Therefore, we can glory in tribulation. And I've heard this before, and I understand it when people say it. This isn't pie-in-the-sky faith. It's, 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 it's not that. I mean, and I've heard people say, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. And my response to that is, want to bet? <laughs> Every day. And things come my way today that are challenging. So what? And I'm not minimizing. These things bug us. They get, and we're going to talk about it as we go along here. But truly, we are separate and we live separate. We live radically different than this world. We don't find our peace in this world. And Jesus in John 16, he says, these things I've spoken to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation, trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's the good news. My king, who happens to own this world, and he will take the title deed back soon, I believe. He's already purchased the right to it. That I can, I can be of good cheer. I, that I can understand that these trials that come my way, these challenges that come my way, that yes, they can knock us off our pins. Yes. I look at it as a difference in the amount of time that it takes from the time that I react to a trial, ah, you know, and the time that I respond saying, God, this is yours. This is yours. It's bigger than I am. I can't handle it. Paul uses some strong language here for tribulation or trouble. The Greek word is thalipsis. Thalipsis. It's a hard one for me to say. And what it, what it is, this is a strong word. This is not an inconvenience. He's not talking about in trouble where you're inconvenienced. I have a toothache. Maybe that's a big deal. And I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that the word thlipsis, it, it, it's, it's trouble involving direct pressure. That's how it translates. Suffering, persecution, that's thlipsis. The Latin word for thlipsis is, or for tribulation is tribulum. And, and that was actually a, a, an implement that was used in ancient times. This word creates a word picture for the people in the first century, and I want to transfer it to us. What a tribulum was, was a heavy piece of timber that had spikes in it. 
It was used for crushing and threshing grain. They would hook it up to an animal and drag this thing over the grain that had been harvested. I think about, you know, they're doing all this work on the highway in Dundee. Steamrollers. That's a tribulum. Have you ever seen the thing that has the great big spikes all on a big wheel and, and they roll it back and forth? Sometimes that's how trials feel, huh? The tribulum. What he's saying is this is a thing that it exerts great force. It exerts a crushing force. But there's a desired use. The tribulum was drawn over the grain. It separated the wheat from the chaff. And as believers who experience the tribulum of our troubles, as we're dependent on God's grace, we realize that trials have a purpose. They have a purifying effect. They work to remove the chaff in our lives as we bear up, as we persevere in trials. Now, the apostles understood this principle very early on that, and, and because they had a divine perspective. Uh, in Acts chapter 5, uh, I love this, this scene. And we've talked about it recently. It says, it says, when the council had called for the apostles and beaten them, <laughs> they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They decided, yeah, it's not beneficial for us to have these rabble-rousers around. So let's beat them up and tell them, you can't talk about Jesus, and then we'll cut them loose. Verse 41 in Acts chapter 5, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I, you know, and I picture this, wow, man, you got a big wealth on your, yeah, but you, you got your girl cut out. Isn't that cool? We suffered for Jesus. And I was like, that's foreign to me. And yet the point remains, these guys are rejoicing in tribulation. They are seeing it as part of God's design that what they're going through by putting Jesus first in their life, because they have a radical perspective now, having peace with God, they're seeing that the effect of that is, is they're not bothered by the fact that these guys came against them. They're actually seeing it as a benefit. It says in verse 42, and daily in the temple and in every house, and they, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They said, well, who are we going to believe? Caesar or God? I, I remember sharing with you folks that were here last week about the church, the Calvary Chapel in Bangor, Maine, that has a case before the United States Supreme Court. And they were to, they were going to hear that this last Thursday. And I got an update on that. Uh, the state governments don't respond to Supreme Court challenges unless they have to. Otherwise, they would have tons of attorney bills. <laughs> what the state of Maine did was they realized, oh, the, the, the Supreme Court took the case. And they did. They chose to adjudicate it. Then the state said, well, we need to file our briefs and you know, our legal response. They don't generally, they don't automatically do that because the Supreme Court doesn't hear every case. So what it did is it created a good delay because now, because the court is taking this case seriously, the state is having to respond and all of that. My point in all of that is continue to pray for them. Uh, I love Ken Graves is just a, he's just an awesome guy. He's a wonderful pastor and he's very strong in his convictions as we ought to be. He says, look, we live in a republic. We serve a king. And there's a difference. That's what these guys are doing here. They're, they're living in Israel, but they're serving the king. 
So in verse 3, he talks about tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. The sixth benefit we see here is godly character. Now, let's be reasonable. (laughs) Nobody enjoys trouble and pain. Okay, if you do, then please see me afterwards. (laughs) We need to talk. Seriously, that'd be like climbing a tree and sawing off your own branch. I did a little graphic here for that. Nobody's doing that. That's not the point here. Who likes getting their, just show of hands, who likes getting their teeth drilled at the dentist's? Nobody? Who enjoys crushing trials? No, we don't. What he's talking about here is godly character. It's not, it's not developed by enjoying the trial itself. That's, that's just weird. It's developed in persevering through the trial. It's developed as we meet God in the midst of the trial and we find hope. That's the point. Trials are not fun. Going through it, these things that, that do have the effect of crushing us. Yeah, and God has his purposes in it. That's not saying that it's easy. That's not saying that we enjoy it. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer there talking about God's chastening. He chastens every son or daughter whom he receives. He says, as a matter of fact, if you don't experience God's chastising hand, there's a very good possibility you don't belong to him. But he says, no chastening seems to be joyful, joyful for the present. In other words, it's not fun, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Wonderful passage when talking about going through trials. It's not about enjoying the trial. When he says rejoice, we rejoice in tribulation. That's not what he means. What he means is that we rejoice in the process because we know that God's doing something through it. And we can trust that. Growth as a believer comes as we gain experience in the middle of life's troubles. Whether they originate from within Let's face it, folks, sometimes we dig our own hole. We do. The grace of God is there. Or they come from without, from people coming against us or from broken relationships or from things that are going on around us, perhaps things with health. This, we live in a fallen world. There's trouble, sometimes lots of it. And we talk about that. I want to look at five practical ways to grow through trials. The first is recognize. And I've got this under, underlined because it's a matter of recognize that you're not alone in your suffering. In Psalm 23, that's a psalm that is, I mean, very often spoken at funerals and memorial services. But you know, that is a psalm for the living. It's not a psalm for the dead. And, and people draw comfort from it. I'm not putting it down for that use. I'm just saying that David, King David, as he was walking through the valley of the shadow of death, this guy's been chasing me for 10 years and trying to kill me. And I know he's trying to kill me. He's been trying to kill me since that spear flew past my head and stuck in the wall behind me. I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I have trials in my life. He says, I'm not going to fear evil. You're with me in the midst of the trial. How do you think David bucked up. He didn't do it because he, yeah, he had a strong character, had his failures, 
But he was trusting God in the midst of the trial. He understood that God was walking through it with him. Recognize that you're not alone in the trial. You're not alone in the difficulty. He was experiencing the crushing trials, the tribulum that we're talking about here. No problem is too great. No trial is too severe because we're not alone. We are in his loving care. Don't think that God just engineers these things and kind of sits back and goes, <laughs> look at him squirm. That's not the loving father that we have. There are people that paint him in that light at times, and I reject that. There is nothing in God's word that says that he delights in the trials that we go through. He allows them for sure, but he loves us and he's working. He's doing that conforming work in us. The second thing as we face challenges, tribulation in our lives is know that Jesus identifies with your pain. Think about it. Have you been betrayed, unjustly treated, mocked, insulted, victimized, heartbroken? Are you grieved or grieving? Sorrowful, stressed, weary, in pain, emotionally or physically? Folks, we live as broken people in a broken world. It's subject to sin and decay. That's just the world that we live in. And I'm not trying to paint a dark black picture, but it's a dark world. It's a world that still lies in the power of the evil one. And it's a world that is still subject to pain and sorrow. I love the passage in the book of Revelation that says, that, that, and John, as he's getting this whole revelation of the apocalypse, and, and then he's taken to heaven and he says, and, and, and I saw in that place, there were no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, no more weeping. The former things had passed away. That's what we look forward to. But for now, we go through things. Jesus identifies with your pain, with mine. He understands it. We have a compassionate king. Yeah, I was looking at the word compassion. At first, I looked at every word where it occurs in the New Testament. And almost without fail, it related to Jesus. And there's a bunch of places where it shows up. In Webster's 1828 dictionary, which I I use, I have a copy in my phone and I have it on my computer and all that. Because it was when Noah Webster did this dictionary as a strong believer, there is a spiritual overtone to the things that he puts down as the definitions for the words. And so in Webster's 1828, the word for compassion, there's two definitions primarily. He says to suffer with another, a painful sympathy. I like that. A sensation elicited of sorrow that's elicited by the distress or the misfortune of another. The second thing he says is compassion is a compounding of love and sorrow. It's a mixture of love and sorrow. So when Jesus would look out over the multitudes and be moved with compassion, he feels love for them, a real sense of love and sorrow because he knows the state of humanity outside of him. And he could. Because if you look in the Gospels, you see that there are two references to Jesus. I mean, there there are a number of references, but the two that I want to look at is that he's the son of God. We know that. God the son. God in a human body. 
But he also made reference often to himself as the son of man. As a reference to the fact that he was fully a man. And he experienced all that a man, you or I, will feel. He experienced what it was to be rejected. He experienced what it was to be stressed. In greater measure than we will. In full measure. I mean, I haven't, I haven't resisted, as he says in Hebrews 12, I haven't resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. Uh, you know, Jesus was stressed in the, in the garden because he knew that that cross was right in front of him and he's sweating great drops of blood. I've never done that. I've never been in that place. But can he identify with the trials that I go through? That's the point. 100% and more because he's compassionate. In Isaiah 53, a beautiful prophecy, part of how I came to Christ. Verses 4 and 5, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes were healed. Praise God. The third thing here on on growing through tribulation, trials, is allow the trial to drive you to your knees. Folks, obviously we're talking about prayer. You ever think about prayer? I mean, the highest privilege given to man is to be able to commune with his creator. That that when, when Jesus hung on that cross and the veil was torn from the top down, signifying full-blown access to God. How do we accomplish that in prayer? In coming to him and saying, Father, I'm a mess. Father, I, I don't get what I'm going through. God, I can't, I can't bear this pain. I don't know what you're doing. I have questions and I, I love you and I know you love me. And yet this is just so much. All of us have had conversations like that. Perhaps that's part of the conversation that you have with God this morning. I want to assure you on the basis of God's word and and by the power of his Holy Spirit, he hears your pain. Allow the trial to drive you to your knees. Pour it out to him. Pour it out. In Hebrews 4.16, God invites us to approach his throne his throne of grace. He says, come boldly before my throne that you can find grace and help in time of need. That's a promise, folks. Access to God. That's what we're talking about. We have full access. Avail yourself of it. Allow him through the trial to sharpen up your prayer life. You have a loving father. You have a compassionate king. He wants to hear from you. He delights in the relationship and he wants to bear your burdens. If you don't have him this morning, praise God. Time's coming. We all go through it. When we're beaten down by life's trials, Jesus encourages us. He says, come to me, all who are heavily laden. That's in Matthew 11. I'll give you rest. 
The point is in this is God's word is full of practical wisdom for us and promises. He promises comfort and rest. And essentially he says, won't you come to me? Won't you give me that thing that is weighing you down? Won't you give me that aspect of your heart that you've kept locked away from me? Won't you give me that area of sin that will just continue to ensnare you and drag you down? Won't you give me that burden that you're bearing because you weren't designed to bear that yourself? Psalm 34 tells us the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. He saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Again, promises. We can call on, we can rely upon the one who will sustain us in his grace. The fourth thing we look at in growing through trials is commit to the process by stepping out in faith. Folks, our response to trials will reveal the condition of our faith straight up. He will grow our faith. We become like the person that comes to to Jesus and he says, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief because there are times I'm no different than you. There are times where I go, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do this. I don't know how you're going to get, how how you're going to work through this. I don't know how you're going to deliver me from this thing. But at the end of the day, trusting that he is the God who he claims to be. And all of us have seen, if you belong to Christ, you've seen that he is. Trust him. Step out in faith. Stepping out in faith, by the way, the picture that I have is like, I step my foot out here and I have no idea where it's going to set down. I have to trust He doesn't show us the other side of the trial. He doesn't give us the future in that sense. He says, are you going to trust me as you walk through it? That's why he says we persevere. Perseverance builds character and character hope. See the progression? My hope is not in escaping it somehow. My hope is in the fact that God is going to walk through it with me. My hope is in the fact that he is accomplishing his purposes through it. And I am simply going to appeal to him in the midst of it. Step out in faith. I'm going to actually trust him. And sometimes that's hard, but he does grow our faith through trials. Troubles can either draw us closer to God as we trust Unfortunately, there are times where they cause people to pull away from God in discouragement or anger. I know when my daughter went to heaven, there were people in my circle that got angry and stayed angry with God. I understand that, but it's really not. It it stems from a complete misunderstanding from who God is and what his role in trials is about. He doesn't subject us to these things so that he can do some kind of weird punitive thing. He allows them. I have a perfect peace. I was telling somebody the other day, you know, I I totally do. I mean, I I genuinely own the peace that I have. Yeah, of course, I miss my kid. But at the same time, she's been in heaven for a number of years now, and I can't wait because it built my faith. I'm not saying they did that to get to me, but he sure used it and he will use the trial that you're in, even though he may not be the one who's trying to to get you jacked up in some way. That's not what he does. That's not who he is. He's merciful, compassionate, loving, kind, 
gracious. And he at times allows us to go through things that are just plain hard. That's who he is. Step out in faith. Learn to trust that he will ultimately work that thing for our benefit. Are you being stretched? Let him work. Allow him the space to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Typical human responses to trials are depression, anxiety, anger, fear, bitterness, suicide. People get to the point where they say, I can't bear this anymore. I'm just going to end it. There's a better answer. There's an infinitely better answer to fall into the hands of a loving king who invites you into his throne room to give you access, to come bounding up into his lap, as it were, and say, Dad, I can't handle this. I need you to walk through this with me. He's eager to do that. And I believe it breaks his heart because when people take something that is a result or a product of living in a fallen world and blame God for it, it happens. It's really unfortunate. Part of our job Part of the ministry of reconciliation, of reconciling a lost world to Christ, is to give people an accurate picture of who God is in the midst of the trials. Because he doesn't stop loving us. He doesn't stop extending his grace to us. He doesn't stop being there for us to call upon. Step out in faith. Trust that even if you don't understand it, he's got it. This is, again, here again, is, it's the shift. In Romans 5, Paul exhorts us not to only endure, uh, but to rejoice or to exult in our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance, bearing up. And perseverance, godly character. And godly character, hope. He's shaping us. Our hope's not here. Number five. Growing through trials. Learn that trials equip us to minister to, to serve others. God doesn't intend for us to endure sufferings on our own. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, He refers to God as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. There's that word again that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, he'll use that pain. He'll use that hardship. He'll use that thing, whatever it is. He'll use it for his glory. He will reach into your heart and he will take the, 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 the very thing that drove you to your knees, the very thing that drove you to his presence, the very thing that hurt so much that you didn't know how you're going to get through it. And he will bring, I pray for divine appointments. I pray, Lord, bring people into stasis in my lives that we can pour your love, that we can pour your healing, that we can pour your who you are into their lives. Use the pain, use the heartache, use the sorrow. Because I'm telling you folks, people don't have answers out there. There is a, just a truckload of hurt. I mean, look at what's happening again with the teen suicide rate. 
It's a product of hopelessness. And what he's saying here is this stuff builds hope, not in this world, but in him. We're talking about here as God equips us to minister to others through the trials we've been in is true empathy. I can stand in your shoes because I have stood in them myself. And that's so important. And perhaps not exactly, not the same circumstances, but I understand. Empathy is the ability to understand, to feel the experiences of another. And again, consulting God's word, uh, Paul, he gives us a great example in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 about ministering in the midst of trouble, trials, the tribulum being dragged over your life, the crushing that we go through. He says, in everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We've been beaten, been put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, gone without food. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy Spirit within us and by our sincere love. Paul was saying, you know what? God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. It may not look like yours. Probably won't. As a matter of fact, when you sign up, you're going to go through it. And God will use it. And he will use you like a city on the hill to be able to, to share his love, to be able to bring his love and to extend it to people who are in genuine crisis, genuine pain, genuine heartache, genuine grief. It's part of our job. It's part of what we're called to as Christians. It says the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. Paul is living out exactly here in 2 Corinthians, he's living out exactly what we're reading about, what we're studying this morning in Romans. He's rejoicing. He's exulting in tribulation. Do you see that in this passage that we just looked at? The question is why? And that takes us to our final stop this morning, the final benefit from this passage, verse five. He says, now hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Quick review and we'll wrap up. We have peace with God, these benefits. We have access to God. We stand in his grace. We rejoice in hope. We've been given a divine perspective. God is developing in us godly character. Finally, what's driving it? What's behind it? That we're loved by God. The love of God. It's what this is about. It's carried to us by the Holy Spirit. We're told in Galatians 5, the fruit of God's spirit is love. We usually apply that to loving other people. And that is a good thing. Don't, I'm not saying that that's not the case. It is. But what Paul's talking about here is the fact that God loves you, that God loves me with a perfect love, with, a, with an infinite love, with a love that we will never grasp this side of heaven. But you know, folks, you don't have to fully grasp it to receive it. He says the love of God is poured out. It's not a trickle. He doesn't just give us a little. Love of God is poured out in our hearts. The question becomes, what are you going to do with it? Number one, believe it. Receive it. It's not based on you. It's based on him. That's what grace is. 
Number two, give it away. Give it away. It's been freely given. Freely give. If there's anybody that's perhaps catching us online or, or anybody within the sound of my voice that doesn't know Christ this morning, you can know this supernatural, radical dynamic that we're talking about here. It comes through a simple transaction, asking God to forgive you for your sins and to fill you with his spirit, to give you a new life, to give you this radical new life. For those of us that are believers, perhaps the Lord by his spirit has put his finger on something in your life this morning. Perhaps you see an area of growth that he's been He's been drawing you towards, perhaps even you, he's been meeting your resistance. Come, let him work. Let him have his way in greater measure in your heart, in your life, and in your hurts. That's what he wants to do because he's a good and a kind and a compassionate and loving God. Let's pray. Father, seeing, just taking this brief look at trials and their effect in our lives. I pray for each one, for myself. You would show us, Lord, the reason for the pain. Perhaps we won't fully understand it this side of heaven, but show us your purposes in it. Give us the ability to step out in faith. Give us the ability, Lord, to use that pain, to use that sorrow, to use that whatever it is, that tribulum in our lives to be a blessing, to come alongside others who are going through it. Lord, let our witness be powerful and strong, reliant upon you, not our own stuff. We pray that it would be for your glory, for your kingdom, for our king. We love you. We're committed to you. Pray that you would now work in our lives through our circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen.